This is Amazing Things, and I'm Adam Belmar. Today is special newsmaker edition of the podcast with Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma. He serves on the powerful House Appropriations Committee, where he is chairman of the Labor, Health, and Human Services Subcommittee. Chairman Cole is a champion of science, an ardent supporter of sustained federal funding for biomedical research through the National Institutes of Health. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Adam, great to be with you. The Amazing Things podcast is presented by United for Medical Research because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com. Mr. Chairman, how is it that you became such an ardent supporter of the federal investment in biomedical research through NIH? You're an academic, you hold a PhD, but this is something that's clearly very special to you and to your constituents, something that you never take your foot off the gas on. Well, I, uh, of course, sat on this subcommittee as a freshman appropriator, actually, when we were in the minority for a couple of years and got pretty familiar with the range of things uh, that it did and got uh, familiar over the course of my time in Congress with some of the people that were responsible for the last time we made sustained increases, Newt Gingrich, chief among them, but also John Porter, who's one of my predecessors on this committee. And uh, it just seemed to me a, a disaster that we had literally flat funded NIH for a dozen years. And we'd gone from funding about one out of every three grants to about one out of every six. So we're leaving a lot of good science on the table. And I was very fortunate when I got there, there was also a change over on the Senate side and Roy Blunt, who has the same views as Senator from Missouri, an old friend. I've been one of his deputy whips when he was the chief whip in the House. And I had a chance to talk about how important it would be and what we could do uh, to make a mark in this bill, which after defense is the second largest uh, appropriations bill that Congress picks up. And uh, we both uh, almost simultaneously said, well, we need to get NIH going again. I think the case for this investment is just so compelling. And I also spent a lot of time my first year, the, the committee had really not functioned very well for a while. It did not report it out a bill to the full committee, let alone from the committee to the floor since uh, 2009. Uh, because there had been so much partisanship around it. And it's, it, the bill covers a lot of controversial areas. And uh, so I told uh, my chief clerk that instead of having the normal four or five hearings, I wanted to have about 15. I wanted to just listen to the members, uh, find out where there was possibility of bipartisan uh, compromise we could move together. And the first most obvious thing was actually the NIH. You could see people on both sides of the aisle, people that were very different philosophically, still believed in that mission, thought it was important. Uh, and then the uh, the other two big ones for first-generation college students. Uh, what do you do to make sure that more of them come and more of them stay? And then finally, uh, early childhood. And those three things. I thought, well, if I can get those that mix in the bill, there's going to be plenty of things we fight over on Obamacare or abortion or what have you. But I can put some things in there that people like and want to work on. I think I'll have a better committee. We'll get a better product. It's worked out that way. But NIH was by far the most significant one in terms of something that people wanted to do. You seem to have a great knack for talking to your colleague about this topic. From our perspective at Amazing Things and United for Medical Research, we appreciate that this is a holistic issue. It's about raising and educating our youth and driving them towards science, giving them a future and funding and work within the science enterprise. And NIH is that place. Can you give us a sense personally, how is it that you connect with other leaders when you're talking about this issue and making the all-important point that this is a bipartisan issue? 
Well, it's an interesting area because most initiatives legislatively are driven by the administration. NIH really throughout its history has been much more driven by congressional interest than executive branch interest. Uh, again, when uh, Gingrich and Porter were putting together the drive, they, they literally were proposing more money than Bill Clinton was asking for or George Bush. And it was the same thing when Roy Blunt and I were doing it at a later period. We were literally pushing for more money than President Obama, who certainly was not an, an opponent or and Vice President Biden, who obviously is a great champion of the cancer moonshot. I think, number one, members tend to see these things closer up. They literally have too many people that they deal with that uh, somebody in the family suffering from some awful disease or some scourge. And I think they also think more long-term about the cost. One of the things I point out, because we've done a lot, probably more in Alzheimer's than any other single area, and the reason's pretty simple. We're spending over $187 billion a year in Medicare and Medicaid, and then about another $70 billion and beyond that in other areas, looking after Alzheimer's patients. And that cost is going to go to over a trillion by 2050, and it literally will break the budget. Why wouldn't you spend some money to try and get ahead of that problem? I mean, you're going to have to. So it's really not only the humane thing to do, and that's the way most people would look at it. That's a dreaded disease. And actually, for people over 50, they're actually more afraid of Alzheimer's than they are of cancer, even though they contract cancer at a much higher rate. As I say, I can turn to the most green eye shade Republican and say, here's what it's going to cost you if we don't make these investments now. So that makes sense to members. The other thing is they sort of understand, uh, particularly on the Republican side, incentivizing behavior. You know, one of the big problems we've had in recent years is when that NIH budget doesn't grow, you're really sending a message to younger researchers, there's not a future for you. And as hard as it is to do this kind of work, if you don't have a future, most people don't get in it just to teach. They want to do cutting edge research. You've got to provide that opportunity if you're going to have the workforce that you need not only to deal with chronic illnesses, but to have what you need, honestly, when you have something like an Ebola or Zika or something, you know, the biosphere is going to throw some things at you, and you have to have a robust infrastructure to deal with those things, and that means you've got to get up every year and do the hard work, not just, you know, once a decade or so, we'll, we'll throw out a little extra money and think that does it. You really need a process of sustained growth over time. Can you help us understand the communications challenge that members have when we're talking about investment in NIH? This is different from simple health care or insurance. And investigating new treatments, investigating cures is a path that's frequently met with failure, but failure that gives you permission to succeed and persevere. These are the things that lead to the amazing discoveries that our program has profiled. How do you help people through that? Because it really does take a long view of the investment and of the success and the the near-term failures to get a sense of why this is so important to our nation leading the world? Well, I think uh, one is we're fortunate enough to have really energized and devoted uh, lobbies that work this issue just out of their profound belief. And you've got everything from disease advocacy groups, and those people are very passionate about the importance of this, the uh, biomedical industry, if you will, itself. And then to colleges and universities, because it's such a, you know, 85% of that money roughly goes out of the NIH, and this goes all over the country to 2,500 different uh, universities and research institutes of all sorts. So uh, we've got a considerable constituency out there, and uh, they do a good job, honestly, of coming up on the Hill and getting their individual members engaged. But in the end, you have to be willing to prioritize it, because we're 
NIH sits in the budget, uh, it's with health, education, and uh, labor, there's a lot of di different priorities in there and a lot of attractive causes, as you can imagine. But this is one that really, in my view, of all the different uh, components we deal with in here, probably is the most important single one. It's almost uh, this and CDC, Center for Disease Control, to me are almost like the Pentagon. Again, I, the phrase I often use is you're much more likely to die in a pandemic than you are in a terrorist attack. Uh, and so you better have robust defensive capabilities there. And then long term, again, you know, 1.6 million Americans a year contract some form of cancer. And disease is expensive. Uh, you, you think cures are expensive. Just look at the cost of disease, the human cost, the cost of caring for people. This is an investment that pays off multiple times over for the American people. And they know it uh, in their bones. I actually have had this discussion with uh, members of the Trump administration. They said, look, we're going to do this. Why don't you take credit for it? You should put it in your budget. Well, last year they didn't, and I think they got their head handed to them, and they began to find out how popular. This year they didn't do what we're going to be able to do, but they didn't cut it. They actually had a modest increase, and uh, they got rid of, uh, I think, some misguided proposals on facilities and administration restrictions on grants and what have you. Again, this is a, this is an institution that's produced for the American people over and over, so I think it's a hard case to argue against. There is another really important economic part of this federal investment in NIH, and that is jobs. You talked a little bit about the scientific enterprise needing to be there to foster the mentees as they grow up and into investigators, but we're also putting a lot of people and energy into economies around the country in states where otherwise it wouldn't be, and they really do spread throughout communities. Well, there's a reason why we have 57% of the patented drugs in the world last year were from the United States, and it's this this unique federal component of the investment that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Obviously, uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industries themselves are a major component, but we put into investment about as much as they do, uh, frankly. So um, this is the driver, and this is the one that, again, maintains the infrastructure and higher education that you have to have to do the research. But the production of, of uh, medicines, the technologies that come out of here, all of them have thousands of jobs associated with them. All of them improve life. You know, I never saw anybody defeated in an election because they wanted to spend too much money on biomedical research. That's not a very good attack point. Most people actually are surprised we don't do more than we do and are certainly pleased with what we do. So, you know, there's certain areas of spending that uh, are not popular uh, and that the American people don't prioritize as much as others. This one they do. They really think the government ought to be doing this. They're supportive of us doing it, and uh, they like it done in a bipartisan manner as well. You're listening to the Amazing Things podcast as we're joined by Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma, the chairman of the Labor HHS Subcommittee on Appropriations. We're here in your office. A great deal of your personal and state history surrounds us. This year brought an important high point, an NCI designation for the Stevenson Cancer Center. Will you talk about what it takes to achieve that? An amazing effort. The legislature set it as a goal in 2001, so it was a 17-year journey. To me, the most 
most important person in that was David Boren, the retiring president of the University of Oklahoma, former governor, former United States senator, extraordinary leader. David put together the better than $400 million of public and private resources that it took to get Stevenson that way, built the amazing staff. We've got an excellent leader there, Dr. Robert Mantle is the, the head of the institution, has been since 2010, sort of led the final phase of the drive, if you can call something that took eight years a final phase. So for us to achieve that, and we were one of the 15 states without an NCI designated center, so this was a big thing for us to get in the major leagues, both in terms of the quality of care for our patients, and then obviously the presence of cutting-edge research. Very, very important. And we can bring some unique things. I mean, that's uh, actually Dr. Sharpless, when he came out at the, on the occasion of the granting, made the point that we actually, Oklahoma is actually that center has the highest volunteer rate for clinical trials of any in the country. So they really want to be involved. We have a Native American population that is very hard to emulate anyplace else, and that's a group that quite often gets overlooked. And then we've got a heavily rural population as well. I think it'll have a unique contribution to make in the, in the complex of NCI-designated centers. The issue of vulnerable populations, of which Oklahoma, as you mentioned, has a large native tribal population. Cancer is the number two killer in the United States, but among native populations, there's an even greater occurrence of cancer, which is obviously very pertinent to those tribes, but incredibly important from a research perspective. And so I've heard people say out Oklahoma way that as they become diagnosed or a family member is to know that they are living in a state with one of the top cancer centers in the nation, that travel isn't necessary, that federal investment has made its way to a place like Stevenson. On a personal level, how does that impact you? Oh, it's, it's very, very powerful. And what it means to them to, look, uh, I actually had a partner of mine, a very close friend, who's now the Secretary of Commerce and Tourism, who contracted cancer uh, about 2003, was given a one in two chance of living a year, has now been cancer free, but she had to go to MD Anderson to get the kind of treatment that she needed. And I know what it meant to her personally as she saw that's not gonna be necessary anymore. Again, nothing against MD Anderson. We're all glad it was there at the time and it's it's you know probably the foremost institute of its kind in the country, but it means a lot when people can, uh, can uh, get treatment at home in their own area and frankly when they know there's research going on again there was actually a huge conference that Stevenson hosted on cancer in Indian country about a year ago. At that time, Dr. Lowy was the acting director at the NCI. He came out and we had some of the best people in the world. But again, this is a population that tends to get overlooked. So the fact that you had a place that would host a gathering like that, that there were lots of tribal leaders at, uh, lots of people uh, in our healthcare uh, systems which are, uh, you know, can vary pretty broadly amongst Indian tribes, but we have some of the best in the country there. And uh, you had uh, professionals that, that really could add a lot to the discussions. And uh, now, uh, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened anyplace else in the country. We have the largest number of American Indians and the highest percentage of our population. The stories that you hear individually, uh, when we had the uh, the ceremony itself for the marking the, the designation, there was a lunch afterwards and a number of people speaking, three of them were cancer survivors, that what it meant to them uh, to have this kind of facility there and they were all very uh, uh, prominent Oklahomans, all Oklahomans honestly that had gotten involved in helping us get the Stevenson Center to where it could get the kind of recognition that, that it takes to get NCI designation. 
When you talk about investment, the key thing from you, Mr. Chairman, is that you're talking about continued, sustained investment. That is what it will take. And I wonder if you'll clarify that train of thought a little bit with regard to American leadership in the world. Yeah, I will. And uh, I want to give my my, uh, sidekick, Senator Blunt, a lot of credit here. We were talking about what we wanted to do. He had one of the most important insights, which is let's not set a goal. He said, when we set a goal last time to double NIH, we did, and then we didn't do anything for 12 years. So let's set a process that we want to establish. And the process was that every year we would do inflation plus kind of investment, and we would try to build into the Appropriations Committee the muscle memory, if you will, that, oh, this is just something that we do. We do this in flat years. We do this, uh, you know, in years when we have extra money. If we have to make some tough calls because uh, we're in a budget cycle, this is not going to be one of the areas that takes a cut or freeze. We're still going to find a way to at least modestly increase this every year. And we've been able to do that. We'll be able to do it again this year. And it uh, actually puts some uh, pressure on your competitors. I always say for my Democratic friends, the tough thing about this budget is they love everything in the labor age budget. So it's very hard to prioritize. And I get that. Republicans are the same way about defense. I mean, we just have different uh, areas that, that we st- tend to focus on. But I was joking with my ranking member one day, Rosa DeLore. And of course, there's a chance that she could be the chairman in uh, January this year. We're going to have an interesting election cycle. I said, well, you just remember, if you don't keep this up, I'm going to blame you. I'll be coming after you. I'll say, under Republicans, we kept increasing this. And she was laughing, but it's true. You don't want to be the ones to break a cycle. Now, in terms of the importance for the country, I don't think there's any question about that. We have been the leader here now for 70 years plus. That's a position of preeminence we can and should hold. And it not only uh, good for our country, we attract some of the best minds in the world that come here because we've got this ability. And, and you, go, you can go out to NIH and look at the number of foreign-born researchers that decide, I want to be in the United States. As long as we can concentrate... Uh, talent here, uh, you know, we'll, we'll stay the leader. You, you've got to do it. And you, and you have to send the message. One of the things that after the first year we did our um, did a substantial increase for Alzheimer's, I t- talked to Dr. Richard Hodes, who heads the Institute on Aging. And I said, well, I know you can't uh, get results immediately, but I'm just curious, what signs do you have that that's going to make any difference? And he said, I have the most important sign at all. He said, this year, the number of research applications we got in this area rose by 28%. He said, you know, researchers like anybody else, uh, they see where the money's at, and you're sort of flagging what's important. And when you're doing it across the board, you're telling people biomedical research is important. And all of a sudden, we have more talented people uh, in the hunt to try and get a grant to do something. That signal is, uh, as I said, just as important uh, for the endeavor itself, which is biomedical research, as it is for any particular disease or particular program. We want to set the standards. We want people all over the world to know this is something the United States values, this is something that they're good at, and this is something that they're going to put the resources out there to continue to excel in. Uh, And I think we'd lost that message for about a dozen years. Again, when you quit making the investments, you send all the wrong signals to the system. You send the wrong signals to young researchers. You send the wrong signals to private companies. Uh, You send the wrong signals overseas because it, it tells other countries, oh, well, they're slacking back there. There's a there's a place where we could step up and compete. And again, I'm I'm happy to have as many countries and as care to invest in this. But I think it's very important that America remain preeminent. 
Every couple of months, it seems, there is hysteria around the country with a very large lottery draw. And in some ways, I wonder whether you ever take time to think about that you personally bought the American ticket in the biomedical lottery. One of these days, despite the incremental progress that we're making, one of these is going to hit, Mr. Chairman. And when it does, it's not only going to turn the cost curve, it's going to revolutionize health care in a way that we can't begin to understand. Do you feel that? I absolutely do. You never know. You're like a battery that goes to the plate. You never know when it'll come right across and you can you can hit it out. But if you're not at the plate and you're not swinging, it never comes. So, uh, and the more swings you get, uh, the more opportunities you're going to have. And it matters to people. I, I remember, I think, when we did the, the first major increase in Alzheimer's funding, I got a letter from a lady in Texas. She had read an article about it, that the United States was going to make a major investment here and was going to try to do it. And she had just learned that her husband of 40 years had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Uh, and she was in her middle 60s and uh, said, I can't, I felt so alone and so isolated. And at least I know my country cares about the problems that I'm facing and is trying to do something about it. So God bless you. And I thought about it. I actually sent her back a, a uh, handwritten note because my mother had gone through exactly the same thing at exactly the same age and it was a really tough journey. You know, you see the work that we've done uh, on Ebola in West Africa, what that means to people or, or uh, through PEPFAR on uh, HIV AIDS, what that has done for the American image overseas to both figure out a way to deal with these diseases and then make them available to, to people at prices they can afford, or in some cases just here, we know you can't afford this and it's ravaging your country, we're going to help you. That's a whole lot better than sending a, a combat brigade team. Uh, is to send something that people say, wow, that's something the Americans are working on, trying to help us with, generously sharing. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel every day I'm really fortunate to have this committee. I only have it for a short period of time, but I'm going to use the time that I have to try and uh, do some good with it and then hopefully influence the direction of my successor. I mean, I want this built up. Oh, gosh, I don't want to be the one to break the string. Uh, they've done it, and we'll do it again this year. We'll have our fourth uh, good increase in a row. Announcing from the very beginning, this is what we're going to do. This is the process we're going to follow. and It's not going to be a one-hit wonder. We're going to make this it's gonna, a national priority. I think it makes it very hard for any future administration uh, or any future Congress to back away from it. Now, they always can, but I think, again, uh, we've been a lot shrewder about talking about a process and inflation plus growth as opposed to some magic targets so that when we reach it, and we don't have to do this anymore, right? It's sort of done there and done. And of course, uh, inflation means you can't ever do that, really. Well, our mission at United for Medical Research continues to echo your leadership and others for uh, sustained funding and increase of funding at the National Institute of Health and also to continue to shine a light on amazing things and the stories of discovery that are changing people's lives. This interview today has been at the starting point for all of those efforts and we'll continue to get downraged to tell those stories. And thank you for your time and your leadership on the issue, Mr. Chairman. Oh, Adam, thank you very much and uh, appreciate being with you. The Amazing Things Podcast is presented by United for Medical Research because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com.